The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. everyone and welcome to bloody angola's sally port i'm jim chapman and this is the historic prisoners with jim companion it's martin luther king day and we're going to talk all about martin luther king in a specific document that he penned in prison a lot of people know this document as the letter from a birmingham city jail so we're going to kind of talk about what led to that letter, one of the most historic letters in history. No doubt about it. Uh, I'm going to spare you a history on Martin Luther King Jr. Because if you are an American, there's no way probably that you've never heard of Martin Luther King Jr. And he was a nonviolent uh, activist in the 50s mid fifties to 1968 when he was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee. He was an African-American church leader. Boom, Jim. He was a church leader, the son of an early civil rights activist and uh, also a minister. A lot of people don't know that that was his dad, Martin Luther King senior. And he led an absolute movement and martin luther king jr was different because he he organized nonviolent protests now there were other civil right leaders at that time such as malcolm x who were calling for by any means necessary type of of protest and those would turn violent a lot of times martin luther king jr was kind of the opposite of that he the goal was the same but his goal was to accomplish these things through the court system these rights that they were seeking and in a nonviolent way because he believed that violence was what was expected out of 
uh, black Americans at that time and accomplished nothing. Martin Luther King Jr. had been arrested over 30 times in his life. You can search different sources. Some will say as high as 39. Some will say as low as 25. It's it's definitely around 30 to 40 times he was arrested in his life. And they were pretty much all kind of bullshit, to be honest. It was, if he's in jail, he can't be a problem. Uh, America was a little different in those days. You you did not have the rights you have now if you were an, a black man in America or a black woman in America. You had to sit in the back of the bus. Of course, we've all heard uh, Rosa Parks' story of, of sitting in the front of a bus. They wouldn't allow that in those days. You had segregated schools. Uh, you had segregated bathrooms. You had segregated water fountains. If someone owned a business and you were a black man or a black woman, you could not go in. If they didn't want you in their store, they would have a note. Whites only. Uh, it was against the law to ride in a car with a white woman. You could actually get arrested for that. A lot of this did not even get close to getting resolved until 1970. Uh, Vietnam changed a lot of that because a lot of black men went to Vietnam and black women and died. And people realized that, wait a minute, I'm a, I'm a white guy and this is a black guy. And we, you know, we're both dying. We're both in the, shedding the same blood on the same mud. And, uh, and so that helped to ease the tensions outside of that. But certainly high tensions at that time. This was also a time in Angola, which we talk about, Louisiana State Prison, uh, where it was known as the bloody years. And a lot of that tied back to the racial tensions going on outside the prison. But we're a prison-related show, and I thought it would be Perfect to bring you something that was prison related, like letter from a Birmingham jail. First, I want to talk a little bit about his arrest. I'm just going to give you a few of those. Uh, again, I'm not going to go over the history. Everybody knows uh, who he is and what he did as a civil rights hero for seeking equality for black Americans. But few people know that he was arrested, you know, 30 to 40 times for fighting, you know, atrocities that he felt like were were going on. Now, the first time, or not the first time he was arrested, one of the more famous times was March 22nd of 1956. Rosa Parks, who I brought up earlier, uh, she had been uh, arrested for refusing to leave her seat on a bus. She had gotten off of work. The bus was full. There was a seat open. It was, you know, the front row of the bus and she sat where she could sit. She was tired. They said, you're a black woman. You can't sit at the front of the bus. She refused to get up, um, rightfully so, and was arrested. Well, Martin Luther King Jr. heard of this and went and talked with her and he said, well, why don't we, we boycott the Montgomery bus company. And this occurred in Montgomery, Alabama. So that's what they did. It was a nonviolent thing. They basically just protested. They went to the public part of the Montgomery bus company there on the sidewalk and they refused to buy bus tickets. They knew that one way that they could hurt the system was to not spend their money with the system. There was a hundred of them. They go, they hold up these signs, and they were all uh, arrested for protesting that and then causing a riot a lot of times is, is the way they would word this. Uh, Laudering another charge that they would throw that direction. Um but he was arrested. That was a very famous arrest. And then in September 5th, 1958, he was convicted of disobeying a police order and fined 
but police commissioner Clyde Sellers actually paid that fine for him. It was it was BS. A, po- a policeman was telling him to leave a public spot on a protest, and he refused to. And so he was arrested for that. Now, in October 19th of 1960, my birthday, uh, not my birth date, I'm not quite that old yet, but my birthday, he was arrested in Atlanta, Georgia, during a sit-in while waiting to be served at a restaurant. He was sentenced to four months in jail. But after intervention by then-presidential candidate John Kennedy and his brother Robert Kennedy, he was released. So a sit-in was a nonviolent deal where if they had a restaurant in Memphis, Tennessee, and Martin Luther King and 20 of his friends wanted to go eat at this restaurant, they'd go and they would eat. Well, in those days, if it was not a black-owned restaurant, you weren't eating in it. That You didn't have the right to eat in that restaurant and they would have signs that say no blacks allowed. And look, these people were just wanting to be considered human beings like everybody else. And, um, so they would go to these spots and, uh, not quote unquote, see that sign and go in and sit down. And the folks that own that restaurant and were employed by that restaurant would say, we're not serving you. You're black. And they wouldn't move. And they would say, we would just like to eat. You know, there's 20 of us here. We've all got money. We want to pay. We're not asking for anything. But they would refuse to serve them. And so they organized these nonviolent sit-ins where what they were really trying to do, they didn't expect this to accomplish. Okay, well, we'll get you some food. What they what they were trying to do was, in a nonviolent way, bring attention to the problem. And this is obviously a problem, folks. This is America. It's the United States of America. I love the United States of America. I don't want to live in a country where anybody is looked at as less than because of their skin color. You know, it's shocking that this was not very long ago. A lot of you listening, this was during your lifetime. But people look back today, and maybe they were born in 89 or 93, and they're looking back on this, and it seems like it was 200 years ago. It wasn't. It wasn't. It was just shortly before my time, and I'm 48 years old. Dr. King wanted to do this the right way, a nonviolent way. And he was smart about it because he knew not only would the attention be brought from uh, just word of mouth and people talking about it, but the attention would be brought from the media. And in that case, in that arrest, I mean, he had John Kennedy negotiate that release and John Kennedy, uh, John Kennedy's brother, Robert Kennedy. And of course, John Kennedy would just a few short years later, become president of the United States and assassinated in, you know, shortly thereafter. So that was interesting. In May 4th of 1961, he was arrested in Albany, uh, excuse me, Albany, Georgia for obstructing the sidewalk and parading without a permit. Another bullshit charge, y'all. He was basically on the sidewalk protesting, which sidewalk is public property. You're allowed to protest there. And they called it parading because they were holding up signs basically saying, we should be able to eat in a restaurant even though we're black. Or we should be able to drink from a water fountain, the same one as anybody else can drink from, that sort of thing. In July 27th of 62, he was arrested in jail for holding a prayer vigil in Albany, Georgia. Absolutely true. He was holding a prayer vigil and got arrested for it. April 12th of 1963, he was arrested in Birmingham, Alabama, with a gentleman named Ralph Abernathy for demonstrating without a permit. During his time in jail, he wrote what we're going to talk about today, which is the historic letter 
from Birmingham jail. And this is very historic. And that's all the arrest I'm going to really cover with him. But there's plenty more. But I want to get into reading this letter. And this was a letter. It was an open letter that he wrote as a response, y'all. This was a response to a letter written uh, or kind of an article written called A Call for Unity. Basically, a Christian organization wrote this letter to criticize the way that Martin Luther King Jr. was handling these protests and these nonviolent things he was doing. They felt like it was causing a problem, and they felt like, it, honestly, that it was not very religious of him to be doing this. How they arrived at that, y'all, I, I have no idea. It just shows you the stupidity of some people. King got this letter from an inmate when he was in a Birmingham, Alabama jail. He had been uh, arrested for some bullshit, basically, and he was sitting in that jail, and a trustee smuggled him in a copy of the newspaper that it was in. It was called A Call to Unity, and it was directed directly at him, and it was published by a company called the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. So totally critical of the way he was handling things, and he wanted to write something back. Now, Martin Luther King Jr. had a lot of power at this time, and the the prison system, they didn't even allow him things they allowed any other inmates. For example, pen and paper was not something they wanted to give Martin Luther King Jr. because his words were powerful. They would not give him pen and paper. As a matter of fact, the same trustee that gave him that article also smuggled him in scraps of paper. He literally wrote this out on little scraps of paper. The letter is dated April 16th, 1963. Uh, and he addressed a lot of a lot of things in it. There in that letter, they accused uh, his organization of being agitators and creating more of a problem than a solution for his people. They disapproved of public actions such as the marches that he would organize in the sit-ins. And I know you've seen the marches, you know, on TV or whatever. Some of these were filmed where they would be arm in arm. And, you know, all these men, women, white and black, and they're marching together through the streets. And they're just basically protesting not being treated equal. Equality was an issue in those days. They stressed to Martin Luther King Jr. the need to wait. You know, they would say, wait and let the court system handle things. If you have a grievance and you charge someone with not allowing you to eat at the restaurant because you're black, and it's obviously against the law technically to do that, then let the court system handle it. Martin Luther King's point was we've been waiting forever for this to occur. And, it, and waiting is the problem. And he's probably right in that. If, if you know, there's a famous saying that I've heard over the years and used many times, and that is the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And sometimes if you just sit back and you wait for the right thing to be done, it never gets done. So while he was a nonviolent activist, um, he certainly was an active activist. And these marches and demonstrations would, would take place often. Uh, and many, many, many people followed him, many black men and women followed him and believed in his nonviolent answer to seeking equality as a black person in the United States of America. Now, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to read you the actual letter. And this letter has been read many times throughout history since it was penned. It even got read in Congress 
and they had a bunch of congressional leaders on Martin Luther King Day. I think this was back in 2019 or 2020. And they actually read the letter. There was like 10 of them, and it was very powerful. Um, but I remember studying this letter in high school and uh, found it to be eye-opening as to what black people were going through in these days. So letter from a Birmingham jail by Martin Luther King Jr. While confined here in a Birmingham city jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom if ever do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would be engaged in little else in the course of a day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have some 85 affiliate organizations all over the South, one being the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Whenever necessary and possible, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. Several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on a call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promises. So I am here, along with several other members of my staff, because we were invited here. I'm here because I have a basic organizational tie here. Beyond this, I live in, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the eighth century prophets left their little villages and carried their, thus saith the Lord, far beyond the boundaries of their hometown, and just as the Apostle John left his little village of Taurus to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world. I, too, am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must cons- constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. Never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outside agitator idea. Anyone who lives in the United States can never be considered an outsider. 
You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham, but I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I'm sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who look merely at effects and does not grapple with the underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time. But I would say in more empathetic terms that it's even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative. In any nonviolent campaign, there are four basic steps. Collection of the facts to determine whether injustices are alive, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. We have gone through all these steps in Birmingham. There can be no gainsaying of the fact that racial injustice engulfs this community. Birmingham is probably the most thorough, segregated city in the United States. Its ugly record of police brutality is known in every section of this country. Its unjust treatment of Negroes in the courts is a notorious reality. There have been more unsolved bombings of Negro homes and churches in Birmingham than any other city in this nation. These are hard, brutal and unbelievable facts. On the basis of them, Negro leaders sought to negotiate with the city fathers, but the political leaders consistently refused to engage in good faith negotiation. Then came the opportunity last September to talk with some of the leaders of the economic community. In these negotiating sections, sessions, Certain promises were made by the merchants, such as the promise to remove the humiliating racial signs from the stores. On the basis of these promises, Reverend Shuttlesworth and the leaders of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights agreed to call a moratorium on any type of demonstration. As the weeks and months unfolded, we realized that we were the victims of a broken promise. The signs remained. As in so many experiences of the past, we were confronted with blasted hopes and the dark shadow of deep disappointment settled upon us. So we had no alternative except that of preparing for direct action, whereby we would represent our very bodies as a means of laying our case before the conscience of the local and national community. We were not unmindful of the difficulties involved, so we decided to go through the process of self-purification. We started having workshops on nonviolence and repeatedly asked ourselves questions. Are you able to accept blows without retaliating, and are you able to endure the ordeals of jail? We decided to set our direct action program around the Easter season, realizing that With the exception of Christmas, this was the largest shopping period of the year. Knowing that a strong economic withdrawal program would be the byproduct of direct action, we felt that this was the best time to bring pressure on the merchants for the needed change. Then it occurred to us that the March election was ahead, and so we speedily decided to postpone action until after Election Day when we discovered that Mr. Connor was in the runoff, we decided to again postpone action so the demonstration could not be used to cloud the issues. At this time, we agreed to begin our nonviolent witness the day after the runoff. This reveals that we did not move irresponsibly into direct action. We, too, wanted to see Mr. Connor defeated. So we went through the postponement after postponement to aid in the community need. After this, we felt the direct action could be delayed no longer. You may ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't a negotiation a better path? You're exactly right in your call for negotiation. Indeed, this is the purpose of direct action. 
Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and establish such creative tension that a community that has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so as to dramatize the issue so that it can no longer be ignored. I just referred to the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor. This may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly worked and preached against violent tension, but there's a type of constructive nonviolent tension that's necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create tension in the mind so individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, we must see the need of having non-violent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. So the purpose of direct action is to create a situation so crisis-packed that it will inevitably open the door to negotiation. We therefore concur with you in your call for negotiation. This too long has our beloved Southland been bogged down in this tragic attempt to live in the monologue rather than the dialogue. One of the basis points in your statement is that our acts are untimely. Some have asked, why didn't you give the new administration time to act? The only answer I can give to this inquiry is that the new administration must be prodded about as much as the outgoing before it acts. We will sadly be mistaken if we feel that the election of Mr. Bootwell will bring the millennium to Birmingham. While Mr. Bootwell is more articulate and gentle than Mr. Connor, they are both segregationists dedicated to the task of maintaining the status quo. The hope I see in Mr. Bootwell is that he will be reasonable enough to see the futility of massive resistance to desegregation, but he will not see this without pressure from the devotees of civil rights. My friends, I must say to you, that we have not made a single gain in the civil rights movement without determined legal and nonviolent pressure. History is the long and tragic story of the fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, groups are more immoral than individuals. We know through painful experience that freedom is never voluntary or given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the impressed. Frankly, I've never engaged in a direct action movement that was well-timed according to the timetable of those who have not suffered unduly from the disease of segregation. For years now, I have heard the word, wait, it rings in the car of every Negro with piercing familiarity. This wait has almost always meant never. It has been a tranquilizing thylamidide, relieving the emotional stress for a moment, only to give birth to an ill-formed infant of frustration. We must come to see with the distinguished jurist of yesterday that justice too long delayed is justice denied. We have waited for more than 340 years for our God-given and constitutional rights. The nations of Asia and Africa are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence and we still creep at a horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a cup of coffee and a lunch counter. I guess it's easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait, 
But when you have seen the vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled police curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an influent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammered as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and and sees tears welling up in her little eyes when she is told that Funtown is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people. When you have to concert an answer for a five-year-old son asking in agonizing pathos daddy why do white people treat color people so mean when you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of the automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored when your first name becomes n-word And your middle name becomes boy, however old you are. When your last name becomes John, when your wife and mother are never given the respected title Miss. When you are hard by the day and haunted by the night and by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, not knowing what to expect next and plagued with the inner fears and outer resentments. When you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of injustice where they experience the bleakness of corroding despair. I hope, sirs, you can understand our legitimate and unavoidable impatience. You express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern since we are so diligently urged people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954 outlawing segregation in public schools. It is rather strange and paradoxical to find us consciously breaking laws. One may well ask, How can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer is found in the fact that there are two types of laws. There are just laws, and there are unjust laws. I would agree with St. Augustine that an unjust law is no law at all. Now, what is the difference between the two? How does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral code or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with with moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in the internal and natural law. Any law that uplifts human personality is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. All segregation statutes are unjust because segregation distorts the soul and damages the personality. It gives the segregator a false sense of superiority and the segregated a false sense of inferiority. To use the words of Martin Buber, the great Jewish philosopher, segregation substitutes an I-it relationship for I-thou relationship and ends up relegating persons to the status of things. So segregation is not only politically, economically, and socially unsound, but is morally wrong and sinful. Paul Tillich has said that sin is separation. Isn't segregation an existential expression of a man's tragic separation, an expression of his 
awful estrangement, his terrible sinfulness. So can I argue, men, to obey the 1954 decision of the Supreme Court because it's morally right, and I can urge them to disobey segregation ordinances because they are morally wrong. Let us turn to a more concrete example of just and unjust laws. An unjust law is a code that a majority inflicts on the minority that is not binding on itself. This is a difference made legal. On the other hand, a just law is a code that the majority compels a minority to follow, and that it is willing to follow itself. This is the same as made legal. Let me give another explanation. An unjust law is a code inflicted upon a minority which that minority had no part in acting or creating because it did not have the unhampered right to vote. Who can say that the legislature of Alabama, which has set up the segregation laws, was democratically elected? Throughout the state of Alabama, all types of conniving methods are used to prevent Negroes from becoming registered voters, and there are some counties without single Negro registered to vote. Despite the fact that Negroes constitute the majority of the population, can any law set up in such a state be democratically structured? These are just a few examples of just and unjust laws. There are some instances when a law on its face is unjust in its application. For instance, I was arrested Friday on a charge of parading without a permit. Now, there is nothing wrong with an ordinance which requires a permit for a parade. But when the ordinance is used to prevent, preserve segregation and deny the citizens of the First Amendment privilege of peaceful assembly and peaceful protest, it becomes unjust. Of course, there is nothing new about this kind of civil disobedience. It was seen subliminally in the refusal of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnego to obey the laws of Nebuchadnezzar because a high moral law was involved. It was practiced superbly by the early Christians who were willing to face hungry lions and extra excruciating pain of chopping blocks before submitting to the unjust laws of the Roman Empire. To a degree, academic freedom is a reality today because Socrates practiced civil disobedience. We can never forget that everything Hitler did in Germany was legal. And everything the Hungarian freedom fighters did in Hungary was illegal. It was illegal to aid and comfort a Jew in Hitler's Germany, but I'm sure that if I had lived in Germany during that time, I would have aided and comforted my Jewish brothers, even though it was illegal. If I lived in a communist country today where certain principles dear to the Christian faith are suppressed, I believe I would openly advocate disobeying these anti-religious laws. I must make two honest confessions to you, my Christian and Jewish brothers. First, I must confess that over the last few years, I've been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in the stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's conciliar or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justify, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you that the goal you seek, but I can't agree with your methods or your direct action, who paternalistically feels that he can set the timetable for another man's freedom, who lives by the myth of time and who constantly advises the Negro to wait until a more convenient season. Shallow understanding from people of good will is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is more bewilderingly than outright rejection.
In your statement, you asserted that our actions, even though peaceful, must be condemned because they precipitate violence. But can this assertion be logically made? Isn't it like condemning the robbed man because his possession of money precipitated the evil act of robbery? Isn't it like condemning Socrates for his unswerving commitment to the truth and his philosophical delvings precipitated the misguiding popular mind to make him drink the hemlock? Isn't this like condemning Jesus because his unique God consciousness and never ceasing devotion to his will precipitated the evil act of crucifixion? We must come to see, as federal courts have constantly affirmed, that it is immoral to urge an individual to withdraw his efforts to gain his basic constitutional rights because the question precipitates violence. Society must protect the robbed and punish the robber. I'd also hope that the white moderate will reject the myth of time. I received a letter this morning from a white brother in Texas, which said all Christians know that colored people will receive equal rights eventually. But it is possible that you are in too great of a religious hurry. It has taken Christianity almost 2,000 years to accomplish what it has. The teaching of Christ takes time to come to earth. All that is said here grows out of a tragic misconception of time. It is the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure its ills. Actually, Time is neutral. It can be used either destructively or constructively. I am coming to feel that people of ill will have used time much more effectively than people of good will. We will have repent in this generation, not merely for the vitriolic words and actions of bad people, But for the appalling silence of good people, we must come to see the human progress never rolls in on its wheels of inevitability. It comes through the tireless effort and persistent work of men willing to be co-workers with God. Without this hard work, time itself becomes an ally of the forces of social stagnation. You spoke of our activity in Birmingham as extreme. I, First, I was rather disappointed that fellow clergymen would see my nonviolent efforts as those of extremists. I started thinking about the fact that I stand in the middle of two opposing forces in the Negro community. One is a force of complacency made up of Negroes who, as a result of long years of oppression, have been so completely drained of self-respect and sense of somebodiness that they have adjusted to segregation. And on the other hand, A few Negroes in the middle class who, because of a degree of academic and economic security and because at points they profit by segregation, have unconsciously become insensitive to the problem of the masses. The other force is one of bitterness and hatred and comes perilously close to advocating violence. It expressed in the various black national groups that are springing up all over the nation. The largest and best known being Elijah Muhammad's Muslim movement. This movement is nourished by the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. It is made up of people who have nourished the contemporary frustration over the continued existence of racial discrimination. It is made up of people who have lost faith in America who have absolutely repudiated Christianity and who have concluded that the white man is an incurable devil. I have tried to stand between those two forces, saying that we need not follow the do-nothingness of the complacent or the hatred and despair of the black nationalists. There's more excellent way of love and nonviolent protest. I'm grateful to God that though the Negro church, the dimension of nonviolence entered our struggle. If this philosophy has not emerged, I am convinced that by now 
Many streets of the South will be flowing with floods of blood. And I am further convinced that if our white brothers dismiss as rabble-rousers and outside agitators those of us who are working through the channels of nonviolent direct action and refuse to support our nonviolent efforts, millions of Negroes out of frustration and despair will seek solace and security of the black national ideologies, a development that will lead inevitably to a frightening Racial nightmare. Oppressed people cannot remain oppressed forever. The urge for freedom will eventually come. This is what happened to the American Negro. Something within has reminded him of his birthright of freedom. Something without has reminded him that he can gain it. Consciously and unconsciously, he has been swept in by what the Germans call Zygotus. And with his black brothers of Africa and his brown and yellow brothers of Asia, South America, and the Caribbean, he is moving with a sense of cosmic urgency toward the promised land of racial justice, recognizing the vital urge that has engulfed the Negro community. One should readily understand public demonstrations. The Negro has many pent-up resentments and latent frustrations. He has to get them out. So let him march sometime. Let him have his prayer pilgrimage in the city hall. Understand why he must have sit-ins and freedom rides. If he repressed emotions do not come out in these nonviolent ways, they will come out in ominous expressions of violence. This is not a threat. It is a fact of history. So I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent, but I've tried to say that this is normal and healthy discontent can be channeled through creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Now, this approach is being dismissed as extremists. I must admit, I was initially disappointed in being so categorized. But as I continue to think about the matter, I gradually gained a bit of satisfaction from being considered an extremist. Was not Jesus an extremist of love? Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. You pray for them despite that they use you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. Was it not Paul an extremist for the gospel of Jesus Christ? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Was not John Bunyan an extremist? I will stay in jail. To end my days before I make a mockery of my conscience. Was not Abraham Lincoln an extremist? This nation cannot survive half slave and half free. Was not Thomas Jefferson an extremist? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists will we be? Will we be extremists for hate or will we be extremists for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or will we be extremists for the cause of justice? I'd hope that the white moderate would see this. Maybe I was too optimistic. Maybe I expected too much. I guess I should have realized that the few members of the race that had oppressed another race can understand or appreciate the deep groans or passionate yearnings of those who have been oppressed, and still fewer have the vision to see the injustice must be rooted out by the strong, persistent, and determined action. I am thankful, however, that some of our white brothers have grasped the meaning of the social revolution and committed themselves to it. They are still too small in quantity, but they are big in quality. Some, like Ralph McGill, Lillian Smith, Harry Golden, and James Dabbs, have written about our struggle in the eloquent, prophetic, and understanding terms. Others have marched with us down nameless streets in the South. They sat in with us at lunch counters and rode with us on our freedom rides. They have languishedly and filthy roach infested jails suffering the abuse and brutality of angry policemen who see them as dirty 
N-word lovers. They, and like many of their moderate brothers, have recognized the urgency of the moment and sensed the need for powerful action, antidotes to combat the disease of segregation. Let me rush on to mention my other disappointment. I've been disappointed with the white church and its leadership, or, of course, there are some notable exceptions. I'm not unmindful of the fact that each of you has taken some significant stands on the issue. I commend you, Reverend Stallings, for your Christian stand this past Sunday in welcoming Negroes to your Baptist church worship service on a non-segregated basis. I commend the Catholic leaders of this state for integrating Spring Hill College several years ago. But despite these notable exceptions, I must honestly reiterate that I've been disappointed with the church. I do not say this as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who was nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings and will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. I had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of a bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting the leaders. All too many others have been more cautious and courageous and have remained silent behind the stained glass windows. In spite of my shattered dreams of the past, I came to Birmingham with the hope that the white religious leadership of this community would see the justice of our cause with deep moral concern, serve the channel through which our just grievances could get to the power structure. I'd hope that each of you would understand, but again, I was disappointed. I've heard numerous religious leaders of the South call upon their worshipers to comply with the desegregation decision because it is law. But I have longed to hear white ministers say, follow this decree because integration is morally right and the Negro is your brother. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I've watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of the mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I've heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. There was a time when the church was very powerful. It was during that period that early Christians rejoiced when they were deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of powerful opinion. It was the thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Wherever the Christians entered a town, the power structure got disturbed and immediately sought to convict them for being disturbed disturbers of the peace and outside agitators but they went on with the conviction that they were a colony of heaven and had to obey god rather than man they were small in number but big in commitment they were too god intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated they were brought to an end to such ancient evils as emphasized and gladiatorial contests Things are different now. The contemporary church is so often weak and ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. It is so often that the arch supporter of the status quo, far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church, often vocal sanction of things as they are. 
But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If the church of today does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authentic ring, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. I meet young people every day whose disappointment with the church has risen to outright disgust. I hope the church as a whole will meet the challenge of this decisive hour. But even if the church does not come to the aid of justice, I have no despair about the future. I have no fear about the outcome of our struggle in Birmingham. Even if our motives are presently misunderstood, we will reach our goal of freedom in Birmingham and all over the nation because the goal of America is freedom, abused and scorned though we may be. Our destiny is tied with the destiny of America. Before the pilgrims landed in Plymouth, we were here. Before the pen of Jefferson scratched across the pages of history, the majestic word of the Declaration of Independence, we were here. For more than two centuries, our foreparents labored here without wages. They made cotton king and they built homes of their masters in the midst of brutal injustice and shameful humiliation. And yet, out of the bottomless vitality, our people continue to thrive and develop. If the inexpressible cruelties of slavery could not stop us, the impression we now face surely will. We will win our freedom because of the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of God are embodied in our echoing demands. I must close now. But before closing, I am impelled to mention one other point in your statement that troubled me profoundly. You warmly commended the Birmingham Police Force for keeping order and preventing violence. I don't believe you would have so warmly commended the police force if you had seen its angry, violent dogs literally biting six unarmed, nonviolent Negroes. I don't believe you would so quickly condemn the policemen if you would observe their ugly and inhumane treatment of Negroes here at the city jail, if you would watch them push and curse old Negro woman and young Negro girls. If you would see them slap and kick old Negro men and young boys, if you would observe them as they did on two occasions, refusing to give us food because we wanted to sing our grace together. I'm sorry if I can't join you in your praise of the police department. It is true that they have been rather disciplined in their public handling of the demonstrators. In this sense, that they have been publicly nonviolent. But for what purpose? To preserve an evil system of segregation? Over the last few years, I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be pure as the ends we seek. So I've tried to make it clear that it is wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends. But now I must affirm that it is just as wrong or even more to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. I wish you had commended the Negro demonstrators of Birmingham for their sublime courage their willingness to suffer, their amazing discipline in the midst of inhumane provocation. One day the South will recognize as real heroes. They will be the James Merediths, courageously and with majestic sense of purpose facing jeering and hostile mobs and the agonizing loneliness that characterizes the life of a pioneer. They will be old, oppressing, battered Negro women, symbolized in a 72-year-old woman in Montgomery, Alabama, who rose up with a sense of dignity and with her people decided not to ride the segregated buses and responded to one who inquired about her tiredness. My feet is tired, but my soul is rested. 
They will be young high school and college students, young ministers of the gospel, and a host of their elders courageously and nonviolently sitting at lunch counters and willing to go to jail for conscience' sake. One day the South will know that when the disinherited children of God sat down at a lunch counter, they were in reality standing up for the best in the American dream and the most sacred values of our Judeo-Christian heritage. Never before have I written a letter this long, or should I say a book? I'm afraid that it's much too long to take your precious time. I can assure you that it would have been much shorter if I had been writing from a comfortable desk. But what else is there to do when you're alone for days in the dull monotony of a narrow jail cell other than write long letters, think strange thoughts, and pray long prayers? If I have said anything in this letter that's an understatement of the truth, and is indicative of unreasonable impatience, I beg you to forgive me. If I had said anything in this letter that is an overstatement of the truth and is indicative of my having a patience that makes me patient with anything less than brotherhood, I beg God to forgive me. Your friend for the cause of peace Brotherhood, Martin Luther King Jr. Bloody Angola is an Envision podcast production in partnership with Workhouse Connect. Music produced and composed by Alfie DeRuin in Studio 433 with vocals by Thomas Kane. Created and hosted by Jim Chapman and Woody Overton. Straight line, shackle and chain. Oh, gruesome Gertie is calling my name. There is no mercy in this penitentiary. Just ask the Hill String Gang, Wrangle Three. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.